Are you ready to create and grow the impactful and profitable business you've been dreaming of? It's all possible. A bigger audience, more impact, and a new revenue stream. We'll show you how. I'm Jenny Barcelos. And I'm Sandy Connery. And this is the Soulful MBA Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 33 of the Soulful MBA podcast. Today's episode is called Humanity. I'm Jenny Barcelos and I'm joined with my co-host Sandy Connery. Hey Sandy. Hi Jenny. Hi everybody. Hey everybody. And we're going to talk to you all about why we think humans need to be more involved in technology and why those of you who want nothing or have nothing to do with tech actually have more to do with it than you think, or at least you should have. So today's topic was really something that we were on the fence about whether or not we should, we should do a whole podcast on this. We know we have a diversity of listeners, but most of you, we imagine, are in the health and wellness sector, which is our core market that we work within. And this may seem unrelated to many of you because what you do every day with your gifts is already very focused on human interaction and human touch. And to the extent that you're designing programs, you're already, I think, thinking very deeply about the needs of your clients or your patients. So for some of you, this may not be as necessary or necessarily related to what you do. However, I think just as a member of modern society, some of the issues and points that we're going to bring up are related to you and your life. So maybe it's not your business per se, but it certainly is related to the apps that you use on your phone, the way that you drive to the store, sort of the everyday modern involvement that we all have with technology and technology-related products as we're living our lives. So I think it's a good one. (laughs) I think I'm glad we're doing this topic. Yeah, I personally find this topic absolutely fascinating and studied a little bit in school, in university, although it wasn't, um, it was so long ago that we didn't really have apps and software and technology at that time. But I just find it fascinating that that intersection between humans and technology or humans and their tools. And for example, in my undergrad, I did a little study of the vibration of tools on the human and what impact it had, like for workers who were in factories using vibrational or pneumatic tools. And it was just so interesting to me. And that area of study would be included in this topic of of user design or, or user experience. But what I found super interesting, Jenny, in preparing for this is the history of it. And going back, the first known user experience example is with Leonardo da Vinci. And I guess, uh, I don't know how somebody knows this or if this is even true, but I'm going to tell the story anyway. Sandy, people study history. There's, those are legit people. So you just need to have faith in the fact that people have a profession and they know sure how to do this. it's written down in some <laughs> old book somewhere, but apparently some Duke of Milan hired da Vinci uh, to design a kitchen. He commissioned him to design a kitchen for this really important dinner party with very important people. And so this is, they're saying, yes, sort of the first use of technology, and it included conveyor belts to move the food because there are so many people at this event, and also a sprinkler system for safety which is very forward thinking of him. And this was, you know, before the Industrial Revolution. So this was, to me, very classical da Vinci thinking. But what happened during that event was that the, the belts were erratic. They did not work well. And the sprinkler system came on. 
And so the entire thing was ruined by da Vinci's application of technology into this event. But then you move into like industrial revolution where tools were invented and or not invented, but like, you know, the industrial revolution came, people were using tools in a different way and people had to look at how the human interacted with the tool. The automotive industry has really led in the area of ergonomics and um, just looking at how the human will interact with robots and conveyor belts and how they move. It's just, it's just so fascinating to me. But now, you know, most of us, when we use the term user interface um, design or user experience, we're mostly talking about technology. So it's really, really shifted. Yeah, we're talking about software for the most part, although, you know, hardware is in there too. Hardware is often just the push of a button. The hardware is the actual phone. Your iPhone is a piece of hardware. And the only interaction that you have for the most part is pushing the power button to turn it on and using the plug to plug it in and charge it, right? So every other aspect of interaction is primarily with the software. Although I just wanted to point out that even hardware has to be focused on user experience and user design because for those of you who have the newer iPhone, and we'll get into some other sort of design snafus later in the podcast to call our attention to, but for those of you who have the newer iPhones who are like me and extremely frustrated by the fact that you cannot plug your headphones into your iPhone, this is one of those oversights. Like This is one of those sort of lack of human thinking <laughs> situations that I think we all agree took place, right? Where, where someone in management said, you need to make this thing lighter or skinnier or whatever, and therefore you have to remove the headphone jack and have this weird little widget that you plug into your phone that you now have to use as an external device for your headphone jack. And it's really easy to lose that little widget. Let me tell you, I've lost two of them. So it's, it's one, there's an example of how human-centered design was sort of not present in a moment in time in a product that many of us are using. Remember the old Blackberries and there's like that, actually, I just, I just ran into a lady the other day who was holding one in her hand. I was like, what is that thing? And it's like this, the big square one, you know, like I forget what it was called. It was one of the last Blackberries. That is so yeah. weird. And she had it for work. And yeah, um, that's she, weird. Uh, I was like, why that's are like you 2004. using that? Like I, I've never <laughs> even seen anybody use it, but that does not fit in the uh, average person's palm of their hand. It's very awkward to use. Yeah. And I have to tell you a little story about um, BlackBerry and hardware because when I was in university, a very good friend of ours got a job right out of university with uh, this unknown company called BlackBerry. And he actually designed the first keyboard for the BlackBerry because I was in kinesiology. He was asking me questions about thumb angles and like, how would you hold this? Hmm. And I remember not understanding what he's talking about. Like he was trying to tell me what he was designing and I could not understand that there would be a phone that with a keyboard, like, I don't even know what you're, why would you do that? And anyway, he went on to retire very, very early and lives a very wonderful life Lavish right now. Lavish life, I'm Lavish, sure. But he worked really hard. Like he worked so hard in those early days. But anyway, so I would, yeah, I would say that any of this user design, we are most familiar with it because of what we do with software, but it is absolutely yeah, hardware sure. as well. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I know that's true. I just I think that the movement has been to simplify the, the hardware that we interact with. Yeah. Like there is one button or two buttons and then everything else is happening inside the machine and the software at this point. What Apple did taking the physical keyboard away, you know, revolutionized 
how you use your phone. Like yeah. very, very few people, I mean, only BlackBerry. I think there's a few holdouts for BlackBerry who like the little, you know, the physical touch of them. Oh yeah, no, people got really addicted to that. Mm-hmm. I, I remember those people when I was working in politics, you know, a long time ago. With the BlackBerry. Oh yeah, you had you had to have a BlackBerry. Oh yeah, and it, it was fast to type on it, right? So before people got used to typing, but like, imaginary buttons on a touch screen. That was the way we worked. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think this part of the podcast, we just sort of wanted to talk to you all and and share our own thinking on sort of the history of the relationship between sort of the humanities and technology and to talk about how this is going back to the beginning of time, essentially to the earliest tools. Mm -hmm. What is the human's relationship to that tool? And who's thinking about it? And why are they thinking about it? And I, I think that the reason that spurred this podcast is because we were looking at some research just together because we're interested in this topic that was talking about how the humanities are in decline and how that's sort of a dangerous thing for tech. And many people in the tech space, both investors and startup founders and engineers are sort of hostile to the humanities. I think there's just this general distrust or distaste for something that's not explicitly tech. And for those of us that have any kind of background in science, I think we're sort of schooled to believe that for like whether it's socialized or, you know, actually schooled, maybe it's subconscious. There's just this sort of like distrust for humanities. And I think that it's extremely problematic given the fact that we need these humanities in order to provide reference points for what we're building and creating in the tech space. And when we say tech space, we're not just talking about ourselves as a software company, we're talking about ourselves as online educators. And we're talking to all of you who either are online educators or who are aspiring to be online educators and online business owners, because this is just as important for you, even though you're not making the tech product, you're actually the ones using it. And the design elements that we make for you are important, but also the way that you translate those design elements to your users are important. And so this is a conversation that's not talked about, I think, nearly enough in sort of the public. And we want to just you know, do our part to bring, bring this issue up and to the forefront as best as we can. I think often that like historically, the engineering science and the arts, they don't meet other than if you are an architect. And I've always thought that architecture was such a cool discipline because it really does have both. You need both sides of your brain working. You need to be an engineer and you need to be an artist. But other than that, they're so the disciplines are so far removed from each other. And it's only now with this technology space that we're really seeing the need for all those people who studied the humanities to come on board with these companies to help make these products usable and enjoyable and pleasant and improve our lives, right? Not frustrate us. And there's a million examples of bad design out there. I just found a blog post with a bunch of very funny, um, you know, like security cameras that have like a TV blocking them so they can't pick up. Like there's tons and when we come across it, all the time in our daily lives. There's lots of um, bad design. And that's just not thinking from that side of humanity. How is this going to be used? How is someone going to perceive this? How is someone going to react to this? Is this going to make sense to them? You know, like those questions aren't asked. And that's where the role of humanities is so important in anything to do with technology. Yeah, one of the articles that we were looking at, Sandy, we'll just tell our listeners and we'll include this in the show notes. It's called Learning to be Human. And it's an Atlantic article from last summer. 
And the subtitle of that article is, In an era fixated with science, technology, and data, the humanities are in decline, but they're more vital than ever. And this article is actually quoting Professor Faust, who is uh, Drew Faust, the first female president of Harvard. She's become sort of a very outspoken critic of the decline of the humanities because of this reason. She's basically, you know, saying that this is this terrible tragedy that's happening in academia right now where fewer and fewer students are choosing to pursue studies in literature and art and philosophy at exactly the moment where our culture most needs the best and the brightest to have a foot or a stronghold in those subject areas. In fact, she quotes Albert Einstein saying, not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. Mm -hmm. And we'll also post that in the show notes because I love that quote. And I think that's such a prophetic thing for Einstein to have said that we it's really easy. It's sort of the easy or lazy path in my mind to, to just sort of choose the simple way. Like I just remember being in the nonprofit world and in the academia world and applying for foundation grants all the time and government grants. And so often we were asked in the questions and these like massive grant applications, how will you prove your metrics? Like, how will you prove that you've made a difference? So funders or the federal government or the Ford Foundation or whomever wants to see, I'm going to have 100,000 mosquito nets distributed, or I'm going to build wells in 55 countries. People love data. They love like something that they can point to and say, yes, this was checked off or no, it wasn't. But what my work was before I became the founder and CEO of Nama's Dream, like what my work was, was like the stuff that doesn't get measured. It was like, how do we create a shift in long-term thinking around climate change? Or how do we make communities more resilient to heat waves or extreme cold? And it's, it, resiliency is not something you check off on a box. And, and so often, and this is sort of a tangent, but hopefully it's, it's interesting to some of you or, or you'll, it'll paint the picture for why we're talking about this. But so often funders will, will say like, oh, you're not, you can't check off the environmental box because you're really a human rights organization or you're a human rights study project. And then the human rights folks would say, well, you're not really a human rights organization, you're an environmental organization. Because there's like so often the work that's most needed is not the work you can check off the box for. And I think that's true in business as well. So if you want to make something simple, like if you want to, for example, open a franchise of a coffee shop or, you know, like a fast food restaurant, it's simple. You, ha you know how much money you have to buy in with. You know sort of like what the business opportunity is. You sort of know how it works. There's a package. There's something that you can click on a website and buy. I mean, I'm a slightly oversimplifying this, but not really. Right. But with with what the work that many of us are doing, there's no easy answer. There's no form you fill out. There's no like put in this much, expect to get that much. It doesn't work like that. And, and so I think that's why this juxtaposition between sort of the humanities and technology or you could even say the humanities and business is, is so important because the real work that's needed that's missing in the world is the work that hasn't been done before. It's the gray area. And if you're willing to sort of put one foot on each side of these things, like say, I'm going to learn and do my part sort of with my art or my creativity, but I'm also going to be willing to embrace the tech side, like that is where the magic happens. And that's what the world needs from you.
This podcast is brought to you by the Namastream software platform. Namastream is a tool designed to help you teach, train, and coach from anywhere on the planet. If you're a wellness professional looking to take your business to the next level, you can learn more at namastream.com. Our clients will typically work, teach in person. And so they've got that humanities side down and that connection and that psychology Mm -hmm. and all that wonderful stuff, but they're afraid to take on the tech and they sort of talk negatively about themselves. Like I'm not techie and I don't know, I'm not very, I'm not very technically inclined and all these excuses. And I think you're right that, that we need to open up our experience. We need to open up our minds to having both sides available to us, the the science side and the humanity side. And that's where things really, really start to happen. And I think for me, it always comes back to the experience of the user. And so I also read another story, Jenny, where there was declining uh, car sales. I'm going back to the automotive industry again with Ford. And so they were like, you know, we've got good cars, but nobody you know, our sales are declining. So they went and looked at, uh, and they knew that China was a big player in that, that that's where they could gain some sales. But they went and interviewed customers about the experience with the car, not just like how, you know, like the technical side of things. And what does it mean? And, And they realized that it's more like the car is now a sort of an extension of your living space. And they they started to understand what luxury meant to them, and they made the appropriate changes. Somebody studying humanities or psychology or something went and spoke to people to understand what they wanted, what they perceived, you know, the experience or what they wanted the experience to be, and they made the changes. And that's always what we're saying in business when you talk to your customers is like, talk to them and see what their experience wants to be. Maybe you do want to teach yoga online, but how does that person want that material delivered? Do they want the 90 minute class that you just taught in person exactly like that online? Or perhaps they only have 20 minutes. And so if you start to ask that question, talk to them, be a human and interact with your clients and you'll find out what they want. And that will create the better experience, the more pleasant experience for your clients and therefore more impact, more revenue and more sustainability in your business. Yeah, exactly. And I, I want to point out the fact that I don't know if we've said this explicitly, but that humanities are needed in tech and we need to have a more humane approach to technology. So again, that involves you and everything that Sandy just said is, is explicitly applying to you. But another resource I wanted to point out for those of you who are interested in diving deeper is the work of Anil Dash. One of the best podcasts I've ever listened to was Anil Dash on the On Being podcast with Krista Tippett. And the title of that podcast is called Tech's Moral Reckoning. So it's really worth a listen if you are at all curious about this sort of intersection of technology and humanity or how to actually create technology products that are more humane, I highly encourage you to look at Anil Dash and his resources. And we'll link to those in the show notes as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Another person that's doing some interesting work in this area is a gentleman by the name of Nir Il, and his first name is N-I-R, and so his blog is called Near and Far, and I think that's hilarious and brilliant. You love those like witty copywriting quibs, Sandy. Oh, I do. Near <laughs> and wish Far? You, thought, you wish yeah. you could use it. I yeah, know like, it. <laughs> I know you No, do. I wish that was my name. <laughs> Just so I could play with it. What can you do with Sandy? What's so fascinating to me about Nir Eyal, he wrote a book called Hooked about how to create habit-forming apps. I think that's the subtitle, something to that effect. 
What is interesting to me is that he breaks it down. Like people use software for three different reasons. You're, if you want to create something that people will actually use, you need to build at least two of these three things in it. So the first one is social. So some kind of reward. If they use your product, uh, and this is why Instagram and Facebook are so addictive, that you have a reward of social. So connecting with others or receiving some kind of validation, like a like or a heart or whatever, like, oh, look, people liked what I did. Or you get some kind of resources. So you get the reward of either finding information or you get the reward of money, for example. Um, And then self, like you actually use something to master something. So there's sort of this personal gratification. So if you can build an app with all three of those where you are socially connected, if you can are searching and finding something and that you feel like you are learning and mastering something, that is an app or a product that people are going to turn to. And he makes a comparison that as humans, that's how we function. Like we are social creatures. We like to hunt. Like he took it back to like evolutionary, like hunter and gatherer times where you are looking for something and the thrill of the chase or finding that patch of berries or whatever. Like you are like, woo, I found it. Like I have success. And then also mastering something to sort of our intellect. So I love that he took like this technology back to like psychologically how we function. Yeah. And that's why gamification is part of so many apps. This is sort of creepy, right, to talk about. And I don't know how much our listeners think about this, but every technology product that you use has been intentionally designed to make you use it more, right? To be addictive. Like that's a whole other conversation that we could get into. You know, so obviously you you have superpower when you're using a technology product or creating a technology product. And I think then you have this sort of moral obligation to make sure that you're doing it in a way that's humane. And that's the flip side. So if you as an online teacher, for example, want to incorporate gamification into what you do. So saying like people get a badge every time they finish a module in your course or they get some sort of reward from you upon completing a certain task. You just want to be careful with how you use that stuff. For you, it's probably not as big of an issue. But for us, when we're building features into our product, it is a huge issue. So I think that's just something to think about. Yeah, and we also wanted to touch about women in design because um, it is a well-known fact that most technology companies, what's the percentage, Jenny, with women? Female-founded technology companies, I think, are hovering around 5%. So companies that have a single female founder as a co-founder, at least. So it's really small percentage, right? So 95% of tech companies are built and run by men. Yeah. And that's a problem. Yeah. We're going to do another podcast about that. You better believe it. That's next week's podcast. But I think I think the point we wanted to make here is that when we are designing, um, we as a society are designing something or creating something new, we need to have both genders at the table to consider both sides of how we operate, how we think, our experiences in life. I think it was one or two years ago that Apple came out with the health app. And there was millions of people who were just irate because this app measured every conceivable thing on the human body, except for uh, reproductive cycles for women. And there was no women on that design team. So I actually don't know if they went and fixed that, um, but they did come out and say, yes, we realize that we need to have more women on our team. And I believe Apple is like, I think their employees ratio is like 70, 30 male to female. So I think it's quite high in the industry, but not high enough, not high enough. 
Yeah. So just to go back to Anil Dash for a second, he's not explicitly writing about women in tech, but he does touch on it in some of his articles. But he has a quote that I'll link to the article where this is from in the show notes. But he said, we fancy ourselves outlaws while we shape laws and consider ourselves disruptive without sufficient consideration for the people and institutions we disrupt. We have to do better and we will. So it's, it's just really important, I think, just to hammer home this idea that the people who are creating technical products and services are shaping the lives of the people who use those services and products. As founders of a tech company, and people who run an online training program, but also our teachers who run their own courses, you have a massive impact, or you can, if you choose to, right, build a big business and touch a lot of people, reach a lot of people. You have this disproportionate impact because you can use technology to leverage what you do. So it's just, again, another opportunity to be mindful about the fact that when you create a program, you really have the opportunity to change people's lives. And we hear this all the time with what we've built, both with, from the podcast to, to like different writings that we've done and share to our course, to our software. We have created something that, for better or worse, affects people's lives. And I think with that, it, there's great responsibility. And I, I think we wanted to say to all of you that we acknowledge the fact that there's great responsibility associated with that. And we hold that very sacred. And, and I think for anyone who is building a business, even if, if it's a small business or if it's a big business at scale, you also sort of have an obligation to hold that relationship sacred, even though you may never meet the people who are interacting with the course or membership or whatever else you're creating, even if they're just you know, a name in your dashboard, in your customer dashboard, th- they're still a person Right? They're still a human being with a family and with a life. And I think just being very respectful that there's an exchange of energy going on there and you have an impact on that person's life in potentially a very profound way. Mm-hmm. That's the main point that I wanted to get across in this podcast is that just think about it. I mean, it's so easy to do when someone's sitting in front of you, but you can so easily forget you are dealing with a human on the other side of that screen somewhere in the world. And I think it comes down to simply good business to make sure that however you create this product and every step that they need to go through is a good experience for them. You think about it if you go to a restaurant or you go to a retail store, you think about the service and the experience with the physical space and the staff and so on. And I want you to continue to think that even though it's online. And I I just think that's often forgotten or you know, it's just like, let's get something out there and let's build it. And that's all I have to do is build it. And we're saying, no, you need to market it. And you need to think about what that person is experiencing while they interact with your online product. Exactly. You need to to hold space for that responsibility to continue on for sort of the lifetime of the product or the, or the user's relationship to the product. I will say that this is sort of revolutionary thinking and advice that we're giving you. This is not This is not the popular dogma around online business and online teaching. So this idea that you have the sacred responsibility is is something that I think we have been talking about a lot between the two of us and, you know, with some other female founders that we know. And, And I would love men to be involved in this conversation as well. In order for the future to unfold with technology the way that it is, it's not going to go well unless 
we take responsibility for what we're building. And that's at all levels. So that's from the person who is building, you know, the iPhone, the next version of the iPhone at Apple, all the way down to the individual teacher, trainer, or coach who's using a software platform to, to teach, train, and coach the clients. It goes all the way. One example would be we would not allow someone to use our product if we found out about it. Um, that was advising people to do something that wasn't healthy, right? Like, so if somebody is telling their clientele, for example, not to eat, like if they were teaching people how to become anorexic, we would kick them off our platform. Like that's, that's an example of what we would do as a software company to uphold our values and to sort of be responsible to the technology that we created, right? So that does not maximize our financial gain to kick people off. We have kicked people off, by the way. It doesn't maximize our financial gain to do that, but it's our sacred responsibility as founders of that company. And so I think we just want all of you to sort of be aware that, that this conversation is starting to happen in the ethers of the internet. And we'd love all of you to be a part of it because I think it's, it's an important conversation that's not happening enough. Absolutely. So let's move into the joy and hustle because we've got some interesting ones this week. Yeah, we sure do. <laughs> okay, you have the joy. Oh my goodness. Okay, I am excited. I did not think we would ever do a podcast where I could use this as the joy, but I'm really excited that we can. <laughs> so we are recommending the works of Edward Tufte. So for those of you who don't know who he is, which is probably most of you, he is this emeritus professor from Yale. And so I sort of knew the likes of him back in the day in my grad school days. And he has um, self-published four books on data visualization. Basically, he's a master at taking complicated data and displaying it in really human, optimized, way, simple ways. So he, he's sort of famous for some of his posters. Like his, he's just fascinating. Like he teaches engineers and data scientists how to display their data in, in ways that are graphically appealing and approachable for regular people who are not in that profession. So it's so cool. He's famous for this poster of Napoleon's March from 1812 when Napoleon's army um, did the Russian campaign. And it's this like graphic data visualization of the War of 1812. It is so cool. It's very cool. Obviously, like showing how geeky I am right now by, by espouting my love for this. But I think for any of you who have any interest in design at all, or how to how design and technology or design and, and science interact, this is going to be a really fun resource. His site is amazing. How his brain works to be able to visually create something that will display that kind of complicated data. It's amazing. It's worth a look. It's worth a look. It really is yeah. cool. Like you really need to take two minutes and look at his stuff if you don't know Edward Tufte's work. And obviously it will be linked to in the show notes. Yeah. And so for the hustle this week, we're going to do ideo.org. They have something called Design Kit. So if you go to designkit.org slash methods, and we will put the link in the show notes, of course, you have to log in and it's free. You just create a little account and uh, log in. And they have this amazing kind of resource center about human-centered design. So for those of you, I mean, most of you are not designing apps yourself, um, but you are building businesses. And so we thought there was some really cool kind of references in here about how do I conduct an interview? How do I start conversations, body language? There's all these really cool resources. They are uh, just most, I think there's a couple of videos, like really short, but most of them are just sort of written out like text, like tips, but really valuable, really succinct, and it's all free. 
Yeah, it's really powerful. So so this is IDEO's nonprofit arm. And it's it's essentially like the people who I know who have had anything to do with IDEO are the smartest people I've ever met in my life. I cannot recommend this enough either. But IDEO talks about on this site that human-centered design is a practical, repeatable approach to arriving at innovative solutions. So what Sandy's talking about is essentially a step-by-step guide to putting the people you serve at the center of your design process. Now, this can be the design of an application, a tech app, but it also can be the design of your next course or your next membership site community. And a lot of what we teach in Soulful MBA is articulated in a slightly different way on this site. So we talk all about how to work with your quintessential clients to craft a product or program or service package that is ideally suited for them. And essentially, that's exactly what this resource is talking about as well. It just gives you some really tactical resources to help you figure out how to do that. So it's great. It's worth, again, a small amount of time to explore. If you have any desire to build a business, you already have built a business and you're creating programs or products, Like this is the kind of stuff that's going to set what you're creating apart from everyone else. This is where you can really have some neat leverage with what you're building to sort of show how you're unique, which is what obviously we're recommending to all of you to do. So yeah, go hit it up. It's a great resource. All right, that wraps it up. That is humanity. So thanks to everybody for listening. And if you have a moment, we would love a review and rating on iTunes. You can head over to soulful.mba slash iTunes. We'll see you next week. See you next week, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks. MBA is not just the name of our podcast. It's also the name of our premium business course and community. If you are a wellness entrepreneur who dreams of growing your business online, but you're not clear on your next steps and you wish you had someone to guide you, then we've got something for you. Get Soulful MBA's first syllabus and three free video lessons by heading over to soulful.mba slash sample. Da 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 da